Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey guys, this is Aaron Miller, the host from the Real Middle Ages podcast, and I'm eager to introduce the history of Byzantium. I've been listening to the history of Byzantium for a long time. And recently, I was excited to hear Robin's take on the relations between Constantinople and their northern neighbors, the Rus. I was excited because I just finished my first full series called The Origins of the Rus, where I cover the early Rus from the mysterious arrival of Rurik to the life and death of Vladimir the Great. If you love the court intrigue and grand personas of Byzantine history, and want to hear the other side of the historical narrative, then come on over and listen to the stories of revenge, lust, assassination, and epic battles as I take a look at the princes of the eastern riverways and dissect their culture, religion, and society. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 163, The Settled and the Nomads. Last time we looked at two Western powers who will play a major role in our story going forward. Today we look at three Northern peoples with influential but varied futures in our narrative. Again, there are some vital points to take in about each, and living side by side as they did, their stories are interconnected. You probably remember most of this, but just in case, the Magyars and the Pechenegs both originated on the steppe land that runs north of the Danube all the way to Mongolia. They practiced the same way of life that the Huns, Avars, Bulgars, and others have over the centuries. They lived off their herds, trading with and raiding the settled populations who lived alongside them. Like most nomads during this period, the Pechenegs spoke a Turkic language. The Magyars were different. They spoke a Finno-Ugric language, uh, the language of the settled people who lived in the northern forests of what is now Russia. The Magyars seem to have been less numerous and less fearsome than the Pechenegs, because at the end of our last century, we saw them flee the steppes, cross the Carpathian Mountains, and descend onto the soon-to-be-called Hungarian Plain. 
This pocket of grassland was protected from the nomads to the east and allowed easy access to Italy, Germany, and across the Danube into Bulgaria. During the past few episodes, I've made numerous references to Magyar raids in Western Europe. For the first half of the 10th century, their warbands stretched out far across Italy, France, and even Spain, sacking and plundering. Putting a stop to these invasions is what gave the kings of East Francia the confidence to claim the title Roman Emperor. From the Magyar perspective, though, the story of this century is not about their raids slowly winding down, but of a state being formed that would turn into the Kingdom of Hungary. When the Magyars first arrived, they had to make an accommodation with the people already living on the plain. These were largely Slavic speakers, and over the decades they were rolled into the Magyar tribal structure. Very successfully, it should be said. As you know, the Bulgars had abandoned their own language to accommodate the mass of Slavs in the Balkans. But the Magyar tongue would become the Hungarian language, and the local Slavic speakers adapted to them. The raids on Western Europe were written about at the time as the typical savagery of barbarians. However, a closer reading of the evidence shows that most Magyar activity was taken with the aim of securing the stability of their new state. Their early attacks were directed against their western neighbours, the Moravians, whose state they destroyed to ensure no western invasion would easily reach them. Then, many of their raids that were made on Frankish targets were directed by fellow Franks. The Magyars were regularly hired to attack the enemies of a western baron, or paid protection money to go elsewhere. An example of this is that a couple of raids on Byzantium in the middle of the century were a result of the Bulgarians paying them not to raid their land. The Magyars also struck peace deals with different regions during the 10th century and kept them. The nomad lifestyle demanded regular trading or raiding so that chieftains could reward their subordinates and maintain their position. But this was usually directed with a purpose, and if the necessary goods could be acquired peacefully, the warriors went home. In order to protect themselves from their enemies, the Magyars erected huge earthworks, as the Bulgars had done to mark their territory. They also depopulated certain areas to deny their rivals supplies should they try and cross those patches. The great German victory at the Battle of Lechfeld in 955 was a signal that the Magyar lifestyle needed to change. They'd successfully united a powerful enemy against them and couldn't afford to provoke them on such a scale regularly. Over the next few decades, this meant a shift toward a more settled society. Money from regular trade and farming had to be generated to support the elite. This process is not our prime concern. What is, is the Magyar conversion to Christianity. 
just as the Bulgarians and the Rus had concluded, conversion was the safest way to persuade the existing powers to accept you as a legitimate state. During the Bulgarian wars, Basil II encouraged the conversion of local Magyar chieftains, and some success was achieved in that direction. But conversion of the state was never Byzantine policy. Once the war was won, no concerted effort was made to secure souls north of the Danube. So when the Magyar elite decided to officially convert, they looked to Rome and not Constantinople. In many ways, this was a practical decision. The defeat on the Lechfeld had come at the hands of the East Franks. To adopt their religious practice was a sensible precaution to prevent further conflict. But in the absence of serious pressure from Constantinople, this decision was made even easier. Around the turn of the year 1000, Grand Prince Vashk became Stephen, the first king of Hungary. A Western script would later be adopted, giving us this transliteration of Magyar. It will take another century or so for the Hungarians to be fully culturally Christian and indeed fully united under the control of the state. During our narrative, uh, Magyar warbands will still raid Roman territory from time to time, and in turn, Byzantine clerics will continue to spread the faith amongst those living north of the Danube. Uh, but we know that they won't have a lasting influence. Ever since Mike Duncan first referred to the future Hungarian plain, the hints have been coming that this was going to be the end of movement along the northwest Danube. The Christianization of Europe is spreading east and bringing with it a permanence of identity and homeland. Hungary won't play a direct role in our narrative for a little while, and it's interesting to consider that for Byzantium, the more significant event may have been the initial arrival of the Magyars on the plain back in the 890s. Remember that it was around that time that Bulgaria converted to Christianity and the new Slavonic alphabet was being spread for people to read the Gospels and liturgy in their own language. If the Magyars had not crossed the Carpathians, then there was a chance that this new Slavonic literacy might have spread north. You may recall that Cyril and Methodius were actually commissioned by the rulers of Moravia to translate the holy texts, not the Bulgarians. And although they were ejected, their work survived there until the Magyars destroyed the Moravian state. Had it survived, perhaps the future Czechs and Slovaks or even the Poles and other northern Slavs would have received the Byzantine translated word. It's just possible that the availability of the Christian religion in a more familiar form could have led to more nations looking to Constantinople rather than Rome for their spiritual leadership. However, the Hungarian experience of interaction with Germany led to a Western outlook, one which was mirrored by the Kingdom of Poland, that began its Christian existence in 1025, the year that our century ended. 
it's entirely plausible to suggest that the Poles, faced with a long, fractious border with East Francia, would have chosen the Latin Rite regardless. And the Pope, with no fixed secular power to support him, was always keen for new converts. Still, it's interesting to ponder what the results of Byzantine proselytizing might have been. Listener M.R. asks what Byzantine relations with Hungary were like, and generally positive is the answer. Basil II and Stephen agreed to work together briefly during the Bulgarian Wars, and formal relations between the courts grew. The two sides shared a border along the Danube, although, as we'll discuss next week, the Byzantine presence there was not strong. Still, this meant that the two sides were engaged in regular trade, and despite the acceptance of papal authority, Byzantine religious influence remained strong across the next century. Stephen sponsored the construction of a Hungarian church in Constantinople, while Byzantine architects helped construct ecclesiastical buildings in Hungary. Roman monks established foundations north of the Danube, and Roman saints became popular amongst the newly converting Magyars. For those of you who listened to the episodes on St. Demetrius, uh, you'll know that he had a popular following at Sirmium, which lay directly opposite the New Kingdom, helping to spread the cult of the soldier martyr. And now I say all these things, not all of them have happened by 1025, but relations between the two states will remain generally positive, and these things will grow. The Hungarians were one of the few neighbours the Byzantines had who didn't have obvious desires on their territory, and we will see this relationship grow over the next century and a half. Across the Carpathians, then, the Pechenegh spread into former Magyar lands as our century began, and continued to enjoy their dominance of the steppe. Their only serious rivals in the area were the Rus, a settled people who had come to dominate the trading towns of the Dnieper River. You, of course, know all about this dynamic. The Dnieper was not the most navigable river. A series of rapids forced the Rus to carry their boats overland, making them extremely vulnerable to attacks by, say, ferocious nomad tribes. When this happened one too many times, the Rus prince Sviatoslav attempted to migrate his kingdom to the Danube. There he was violently ousted by John Zimiskis, and the prince was killed on his way home by the very same Pechenegs. This description of the dynamic between the neighbouring peoples is, however, very Rus-centric. The implication of it is that Pechenegg attacks were like those of animals, waiting for their opponent to become vulnerable, then attacking, especially people who were only engaging in peaceful trade. A more balanced picture is painted by modern historians like Thomas Noonan. He points out that we are inherently biased toward the Rus, the settled society, because they wrote histories while the Pechenegs did not. So the picture we get is of the Rus living in cities like civilized people, while the Pechenegs would swoop down on innocent civilians and rape and enslave. 
But these tactics were exactly the ones used by the original Varangians, who founded the Rus state, and were continually practiced by their ancestors on the settled peoples who lived on the periphery of the Dnieper. Great traders they were, but the key to Rus' wealth was the subjection of their neighbours. By regular campaigning against the Slavs and Finno-Ugric speakers and other peoples of the area, the Rus established an annual tribute that they were to be paid. These settled peoples would hand over furs, honey, slaves and other precious items in exchange for not being terrorised. This produce was then shipped down the Dnieper and sold in the markets of Constantinople. The profits from these free items funded the Rus elite and kept them in power. This system was of course very similar to the tributary model used by the great steppe empires. The Pechenegs were not a great empire. They were simply living off their herds and trading or raiding their settled neighbours and were using tactics no different to the Rus. But they didn't subject the same people year after year. One of the benefits of Christianity to a people like the Rus was the moral framework that it provided for their struggle with the nomads. A people of God might have to do distasteful things to survive, but they were justified in their aggression towards pagans, who were, of course, beneath contempt. The characterization of the Pechenegs as savages who followed their baser instincts was also completely inaccurate. The nomad lifestyle involved a great deal of sophistication and discipline. Grazing lands had to be divided rigorously between different tribes to avoid conflict. For example, the Pechenegs of this period, so we're told, were split into eight tribes, four on each side of the Dnieper. Each tribe followed a strict cycle based on the seasons. When spring appeared, the herds were pushed north to find fresh pasture. Then, as autumn came, everyone moved south to find grass that would not be covered in snow come winter. Every person within the tribe had specific responsibilities. As you might expect, women and children would run the camps, while men guarded the flocks and organised trade and war. The nomads were not self-sufficient. They needed settled communities to provide them with products they couldn't make themselves. Hence why the Byzantines could often supplement payments of gold with goods, silks, weapons, pots, pans, finished leather and other necessities. Of course, tribes unable to make a trade would resort to violence to acquire what they needed, and the victims of those attacks were rightly aggrieved and perceived the Pechenegs as savages. But where trade or tribute was agreed, the relationship could be peaceful, and the nomads were often paid to attack the enemies of the settled people, just as we saw with the Magyars. Rus princes, for example, regularly hired the Pechenegs to attack their rivals. So the complaints of the poor victims uh, were often directed at the wrong target. 
This complicated relationship is how the Rus and Pechenegs lived side by side for most of the 10th and early 11th centuries. Pecheneg history is unknown to us, so I can only conclude by pointing out the dangers to come. The Byzantines had spent over a century now paying the Pechenegs off and making sure they had access to the markets of the Danube or Cherson. This kept the tribes happy and on their side of the river. But should movement further east on the steppe from the mass of Turkic-speaking tribes take place, then the Pechenegs might be pushed west and seek, as so many had done before, accommodation on either the Hungarian plain or in the Balkans. And now one of those locations is occupied by an organized Christian kingdom. The other is only just recovering from a very long war. Yes, I'm afraid next century the Pechenegs will be forced across the Danube and reopen a Byzantine wound which Basil II had only just sutured shut. As for the Rus, you know that they converted to Christianity under Prince Vladimir back in 988. This opened the way for the Byzantines to recruit Scandinavian and Rus mercenaries into their armed forces and re-secured Rus trading rights at Constantinople. But what happened after Vladimir's death gives us a glimpse into the future disintegration of the Rus state. The weakness of the Rus state was that it was based on a series of river trading towns. As we've seen throughout the podcast, seaborne attacks are hard things to pull off, so it was relatively easy for one town to shut its gates and reject the authority of the ruling city, Kiev. This was exacerbated by the failure of Vladimir and others to establish a clear line of succession. Rather like the Carolingian system, brothers and uncles could step in to inherit the throne, a recipe for repeated civil wars. Sure enough, murderous conflict between Vladimir's sons continued for five years after his death. Control was then divided between two sons before Yaroslav the Wise was able to reunite the state in 1036, some 21 years after his father's death. Yaroslav ruled for another two decades, and he did lots to cement Byzantine Orthodox culture into Rus' society, including hiring Byzantine architects to construct an Hagia Sophia and Hagia Irene in Kiev. Uh, you can see what the Hagia Sophia looks like on the website. But Yaroslav was as lucky as he was wise. Rival males had all died off or been killed, allowing him the authority to reunite the state. But he didn't change the rules surrounding inheritance. He counseled his own sons not to turn on one another after his death, but they did. The fractured nature of Rus' leadership and geography would eventually lead to a permanent division of the trading towns in the 12th century. Back in 1025, though, despite its political divisions, the Rus state remained both Byzantium's most important military ally 
and still its greatest threat. Constantinople's sea walls were its most vulnerable spot, and the Rus were the only other serious naval power in the region. That ends our tour of Byzantium's western and northern neighbours, well, at least those living north or west of the Danube. Next time, we head into the Balkans to talk in detail about Basil II's conquest. What did that really mean? How many Byzantine troops were on the ground? And how did Byzantine and Bulgarians view one another? If you'd like some more quality history podcasting in the meantime, then check out the Real Middle Ages podcast. You heard Aaron introduce the show today, and yes, he began his excellent series with the Rus. So if you'd like to learn more about their history and their perspective on Byzantium, then the Real Middle Ages could be for you. Or if you subscribe now, you can hear more about Aaron's second topic, the Normans excellent synergy with our end of the century tour go to therealmiddleages.com or search for it in any podcasting app finally today my istanbul kickstarter is live and there's been lots of support already which is great thank you so much to all of you but i want to speak to those who skipped the last episode or thought eh, i'll check it out in a couple of weeks or have already forgotten about it please check it out. Even if you have zero interest in Istanbul, you still might want some of the rewards, including bonus podcasts. I'm going to create three new episodes based on the House of War episode, episode 89. That was the episode where I told a fictional story about you, a fictional Roman soldier on the Eastern Front, and what it was like to deal with Arab raids. I think these three episodes will be fantastic because there'll be a combination of the drama that fiction can provide with all the details that the literature and archaeology and the coin finds can tell us about how people lived and survived when every summer they would look at the horizon and know that the enemy might be coming to drag them off into slavery. Please consider checking it out. The Kickstarter only runs for March, and in case you've never dealt with a Kickstarter campaign before, if we don't hit the target, then nothing happens. You all get your money back. The project does not go ahead. So please do consider pledging your support. That's it for now. Next week I'll be back with a new episode. Thanks again to all of you who've already pledged. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 